0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Well, gentlemen, welcome. It is so good to see you. Today, we have a topic that I I personally have some skin in the game in, and we're going to treat it kind of like a hypothetical that may or may not be hypothetical. We're talking about graduate programs, and we're going to use me as an example and walk through kind of what someone should be thinking about as they're approaching a graduate program or what they might be looking for, what Talbot offers, what schools like Talbot offer. And I'm just so excited about this conversation, hypothetically. Knowing what we know just from statistics about this podcast and kind of where our Uh, Listeners are at in their process of education. Most people have bachelor's degrees or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And for some of us, we're considering okay, you know, I have been reading great books, I've been listening to great podcasts. I maybe meet with a discussion group, like we've talked about on previous episodes, that importance of community and iron sharpening. And now the question is I'm really interested in this stuff. Do I continue? in education to further my knowledge about this field mm. of philosophy, possibly ethics, apologetics, and where do I go from here mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. kind of the question that some of us might be asking, mm-hmm. or we know people who are asking that question. So what I first want to ask is, would give a general overview of the kind of graduate programs offered at Talbot, things like Master's of arts and philosophy and ethics. Stan, you have that degree uh, Masters in Christian Apologetics, Masters in Divinity, or even maybe a uh, Doctor of Ministry. Can you kind of give us what that what that looks like at Talbot.
1: Well, let me just start off by saying that the first question a person needs to ask himself or herself is, what is happening in the church as it relates to the culture? And, and one of the things you have to face, as we've talked about time and again in this broadcast, is that the church is just essentially unequipped and illiterate and doesn't value learning to think carefully and interact with the culture. So if if one of our listeners is burdened about that and feels some kind of calling to, to contribute to that problem and help, with the solution, then going into a graduate program like the ones we have at Talbot might make sense. So uh, I'll describe some of the programs, and Stan can jump in. Uh, An MDiv is your standard seminary degree, and it has a balance of, of, of the range of theology, it has uh, studies in some Greek and some, a little bit of Hebrew, and it covers the, the major books of the scriptures. It has courses in pastoral ministry uh, and and family counseling and things of that sort. So its its purpose is to give you a three-year generally good theological and biblical education. An MA is usually two years. It can be one, but usually two, and it's a little bit more... Specialized, like you can get an MA in philosophy at at, at Talbot. There aren't too many schools that actually uh, have that sort of thing. I mean, Liberty University has something similar, but that's, and uh, uh, Houston Baptist is developing something like that. But that's about it as far as I know. Uh, But the point is here that you can do an MA in philosophy, you can do one, and we have a degree in marriage and family counseling. And then there's a general MA in biblical studies. Now, that means that these they're shorter. They don't go into it in as much depth. You get quality training, like in the master's in biblical studies, but it's not going to give you as much as you get if you stayed a third year. And the other two MAs are a bit more... Focused, so they won't be as broad as the MDiv because they're specialized, and you just have to look in catalogs, uh, Talbot's catalog, and so on, to see what specializations they offer at, at the master's level. Stan, you can speak about uh, the the Doctor of Ministry degree.
2: Sure. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, Jordan, I did both a Master of Arts in Philosophy and Ethics, and then went on and did the Doctor of Ministry there at Talbot. The Doctor of Ministry is a degree that is designed for someone who has their master's and wants to take it into a more specific study, maybe of certain areas, but apply it to a certain ministry context. That's why it's a Doctorate of Ministry. Uh, I liken it to a, a a person who's got an MD degree and somebody's got maybe a PhD in neurology. The PhD is going to be more oriented toward teaching. And research. The person with the MD degree is more a practical degree that equips him or her to see patients and engage in the type of things that one does in a, not a laboratory, but in a a doctor's office or a or a or in surgery, that type of thing. So the a PhD in philosophy would be to prepare one to do research, to teach, to be in an academic context. A doctorate of ministry would prepare one to be engaging the same ideas, but in a more popular context, in a church setting, in a parachurch ministry context like I've been in, uh, or in other ways that aren't specifically in a professorial role. And then, of course, there's many different demons one could do, uh, not just in philosophy, uh, whether it's a Talbot or other places. JP, you might say more about the other demons that are out there.
1: There will be demons in pastoral counseling and preaching in church organization, leadership, uh, and uh, and I could go on, but that gives you a general sense. One thing that I think it's important to mention at this point, and this will really factor in a little bit later when we get into why I think this is for me, is that these days there are now high-quality master's degrees online. We, for example, have our our entire MA in philosophy online. You don't have to come to campus, and it is outstanding. Now, I believe coming to campus, if you could do that, is better, and we can talk about that later. But I'm just saying that the courses in our MA in philosophy, and we have an MA in apologetics, too, in both of those programs, the courses are—you know—I'm teaching the same courses as are my colleagues, and so they're—they're they're really well done. And uh, you're going to get the goods online if that, if you can't come to campus. So uh, that'll be available in other programs like the MDiv and so on. So that helps at least lower the bar a little bit for people who can't move. Just just something to keep in mind.
0: It's really important to think about. You know, we were talking about some of the, some of the options out there and it can feel a bit overwhelming to look at, okay, do I want to take a path toward a MDiv or a path toward a master's of arts? And can you you kind of walk me through what that discernment process would be like?
2: I'd be happy to offer something because I did have to weigh those options and uh, quite simply the m div is the path to take if one is heading toward the pastorate because it's got as j p mentioned not only the 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 languages and the theology and biblical studies old testament new testament uh it's also got the more practical courses like pastoral counseling and homiletics the 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 course that helps you learn to preach a sermon and all, all those types of things I ultimately was convinced God was not calling me to the pastoral ministry in a church context. And so uh began looking at MAs because those, as we mentioned earlier, don't have those additional courses that are practically oriented toward the role of a pastor, but are more focused on the specific topic of the degree. So, for instance, the MA Philosophy and Ethics that I did was a third Classes in philosophy, uh, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. A third of the classes were in theology, uh, which was great, was able to then help me integrate biblical truth and philosophical truth we were engaging. And then a third of the classes were electives, if I recall, so I could specialize. I did I did a, a focus in church history and the history of ideas, but uh, one could do it in any any number of things. And it really allowed me to focus in on those issues that I found I needed to be equipped to engage in my ministry context, having been at that point seven years into my ministry career and realizing at that point, here's who I am, how God's gifted me, what he's calling me to do, and therefore the type of degree that will best help me be prepared to take the next step.
1: I think that's uh, really good, and I'll just add a little bit to it. Uh, I think somebody needs to, first of all, assess their overall station in life. Mm. Are you single? Are you are you married? Uh, do you have children? How's your financial situation? Do you have the kind of a job that you could leave that job and you'd be okay financially if you got a part-time job and you went to campus and had to move? Uh uh, would would you better do it online because you could keep your job? So I think your first responsibility has got to be to your family. Uh, and if you're single, uh, Paul says one of the advantages of being single is that you're not hung up in the affairs of daily life. And uh, I know that we have a certain perspective on singleness, but that look, it's not the curse that people think it is. And there are some advantages, and that means you could pick up and leave more easily than if you had, say, a family. So those have, th- those kind of real-life situations have got to be you know, dealt with, and, and you got to think about those and, and weigh those in the equation. I think the second thing that I want to say is that I believe a person should go for graduate biblical or philosophy training or, or relatedly. First of all, because they're hungry to learn about it and they want to grow as ambassadors for Christ. And in their own, they want to develop their own convictions more firmly. And they want to be they want to apply it to themselves first. They want their doubts resolved and and so on. The second thing with then would be does this relate to me vocationally? And and that maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. Uh, but that question is secondary, and uh, that question about vocation is also going to include a little bit about the need for income. And again, if you have kids and, and so on, uh, you, it, may, it may be a rough go to take a beginning pastor's salary somewhere. So those are things you need to look into uh, as you're making this decision. And I think that gives – I'm trying to give, in addition to what Stan said, a, a, just a framework uh, for how to think about the specific questions, which are crucial. you got to think about those, too. That's yeah, really
2: good. Thanks. Yeah.
0: Just to sum up kind of what I heard you say there, there might be some really good reasons why a person might stick with reading and listening to podcasts or maybe watching courses online and staying with a discussion group instead of moving into that further education in a more formal manner. Or maybe put it off for a later time because you're in a season with your feet that this is not the right time to take on the kind of weight that that equipping would require for you to be able to really dig in. You know, if that's going to be a sacrifice that just isn't tenable for your current situation, then it might not be for now.
1: Well, what's interesting about that, Jordan, is that the studies have indicated that people are going to seminary uh, uh, later and later in life. And what we are finding happen is that when people get out of college, they they get a you know a job in line, perhaps with their major, or maybe not. But they and they maybe begin a family, maybe not. But after a while, they begin they become dissatisfied with that kind of work and and they go their church attendance and participation and and, and their own reading and listening to podcasts and so on is wetting their appetite for a, a deeper involvement in what you might call vocational work and so they're coming back to seminary saying honestly this is what i really want to do with my life going forward and i think i'm at a point in life where i i, I could pull this off Whereas when I was a 22 year old, I wasn't ready for that, and I and so that's one thing that I think underscores your point that timing is a is an important issue here, uh, and you have to be sensitive to your situation and your and your sense of energy and your readiness and all that, and like I say, don't forget that uh, while moving to campus and being there is without doubt the ideal situation. Getting an online degree is a really good second, uh, and that might help offset some of the worries uh, uh, that a person would have that I just don't think I can do
2: this. I want to make a point that I think our listeners will already know, but for sake of clarity, I want to make sure it is stated. It uh, It is usually a two-year degree, as JP said. Uh, MDiv is a three-year degree. And it might be thought that it's sort of like uh, going back to college and doing, uh, you know, what, what you did when you did your bachelor's degree. Uh, in some ways it is, but in a lot of ways it's not. And it's not especially in terms of the, uh, both the amount and the sophistication of the engagement in the material, which plays into the time factor. I mean, one has to be very cognizant of what, what one's getting into. I remember uh, I always was depressed after the first day of class because I was 500 pages behind in my reading. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, there's just a lot more required in terms of the amount of reading, the amount of thought required. Uh, J.P., I remember one, I think it's my first class with you. uh, uh, You were going through the textbooks and uh, held up a, a small little book. Uh, and said, so yeah, I got good news and bad news. This is one of the main books we'll be using as a text. Uh, the good news is it's, uh, you know, 130 pages, and, you know, you're going to be required to read about 10 pages a, 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 a for class each time. And um, the bad news is it's going to take you probably four hours to read those 10 pages, and you'll probably understand 20% of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, – do you remember this book? Yes, I do. David Wiggins. Yes. Yeah, That was same. a tough one. That was a tough one. Sameness and substance. Great yeah. book. But uh, yeah, I might have got 10%. But uh, yeah. Uh, and you said, you know, I got about 50% so, or, uh, or so. <laughs> so I'll help you get up to that level in lectures. But but the point is, it was just a whole nother level. I couldn't even comprehend until I got there and realized here's what it's going to take in terms of this, just the time and the mental energy to not master this even, but just to get some sense of, okay, I know what's going on here. Now, on the other hand, uh, and JP, you were a great encouragement to me, uh, you know, no matter uh, how much background one has, if you're willing to work hard, you can, you can do that. But the point is, it's going to take a lot of time and energy. And so I wouldn't want our listeners or, you know, Jordan, as you're thinking about this personally to think, okay, it's sort of like my my bachelor's degree, but, but just, a, you know, maybe a few other issues. No, it's a, it's another level, but it's a good level to go to if you're, Back to JP's point, if you're really in, interested in the topic and have a deep desire to know, then it's a labor of love. I don't ever remember not wanting to do the readings. They were all so interesting, but they just were tough. Were hard, just tough sledding.
1: Yeah, yeah just that's is right. what it is. Well, and I, you know, that's grad school.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, and it just needs to be said.
1: Uh, well, I'm glad you did. Yes, and I'm I'm so glad you pointed that out, Stan. You know. Jordan, uh, th- there just is no substitute for a, a studying under mentors that are skilled craftsmen in a, in their field. There just is no substitute. Believe me, and I'm so thankful, you can get an awful lot out of reading. good. There's so many good books today. They're available and listening to things online and and following a podcast regularly, there's just so much available, and I'm I praise the Lord for that. But it's a it's a whole other thing to study under someone who is a is a master craftsman, and like in our department, we have five professional philosophers who have degrees from Oxford and Syracuse and Texas and USC and 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 really top schools, and they have been doing this. And there's just nothing like having them assign your reading because they know why they're picking this reading, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. having them read your papers and giving you feedback and going to their office and having office hours and saying, I don't think I get this at all. Or what do you think of this idea? There's just no substitute for it. And I should add. The the importance of immersing yourself in a community of like-minded graduate students that are pulling together mm-hmm. and not competing with each other is absolutely priceless mm-hmm. because you learn a lot from going and getting coffee after class and, and saying, I don't think I got half that. And the other guy says, well, I got this part. How about you? No, but I got that one. And you, and you trade things and you go through it. And I'll tell you what, there's just nothing like it. Yep.
0: Yep. That's amazing. I I know sometimes schools will even kind of advertise, hey, the cohort is part of the program.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: The people that you're getting access to in this program are people that are going to sharpen you in ways that your friends and the conversations you're having in day-to-day life, they just don't have the resources with which to do that on a level that graduate students feel. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students, and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly.
2: That's an important term you just brought up, cohort, because it has two different meanings. And I think JP was using it in the broader sense of you do have a cohort of colleagues, you're going to class with and you can have these kind of conversations with. That's also used often in um, in the, at least DMIN programs, maybe in some other places as well, more technically for a group that actually goes through that a very specific curriculum together. So at the MA level, I wasn't in a cohort in that I had some classes with the same people, but it was always a mix. In the DMIN, I was in a cohort that went through those classes all together. Every year. Yes, yes, each year. And and there were reasons for that. JP, you might want to say more about that distinction and why that's the case at the MA, Phil, and the DMIN levels.
1: When it comes to the MA levels, you you, you essentially just have students that are taking the program, and there's a general uh, schedule of courses that should be taken before other courses, but not everybody has the same time frame and so they have to juggle their classes to fit their you know their work schedule or whatever and so it's not it doesn't pay to have the cohort that stays together all throughout the program because nobody could have the same schedule like that with a, a doctor of ministry program it is ideal in that the campus time is like a two week period of very intensive study and lecture but but the cohort goes through the entire DMin program as one. There may be ten to fifteen in your cohort, something like that. And the benefit of that is that you can interact with each other online when you go home, mm. and and so there's a little community that's formed, and uh, that stays together throughout the whole program. That's really ideal, but you just can't do that if you've got. You know, 40 graduate students doing an, M, an MA or an MDiv, and they, you know, they have different schedules.
2: Mm-hmm. And again, back to my earlier point, the DMIN is for practitioners, those actually out in a ministry context. And uh, usually it's older students as a result who have families and responsibilities professionally. So they can't go study for two years on campus. And so the courses are intensive, two week drinking from a fire hose, and then you do a lot of the work back wherever you are, uh, both readings, writing, engaging with those in the cohort. But that uh, facilitates that kind of learning community that you you get if you were doing an MA on campus.
0: And I'm sure there you get a lot of diversity of experience in a cohort like that, because if you're all in professional ministry, that I'm sure is really enriching the content because you're hearing from people who are having experiences or have had experiences yeah. in these different contexts. I can see how that would be incredibly helpful, but difficult logistically at a master's level.
2: Sure. Yeah. And again, the master's often, well, the philosophy master's is really an academic focused degree that sets you up to go into PhD work or into demon work or neither Depending on what God's calling you to. So it's it, it is a very different animal.
1: Well, it is, and especially the MA in philosophy or the MA in apologetics. And if I could, if I could be honest, uh without any any need to 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 boast or 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 uh, promote our programs, please, but it's just as a fact, I believe, that our our graduate program in philosophy. Uh, and our graduate program in apologetics, which is a completely different program, some of the courses can be taken in from one to the other, but they're they're the finest ones in the country, at, at least at this point, uh, and and it's not even close. And uh, we have just year after year, we have just been highly successful in giving the students even more than they'd hoped for. And I, and our students leave extremely satisfied with their experience, with their time, what they learned, the life change that took place, the way they matured and spiritually. And uh, honestly, it's just a tremendous experience. And there's it's just as good as it gets. Uh, and we're preparing uh, students in our philosophy program like Stan said, to go on for PhDs, and we've planted around 230 or 40 of our graduates in full and doctoral programs. So we have somewhere around 100, I've lost track to be honest with you, that are uh, uh, tenure track professors in secular and Christian schools. But, But also, we've got so many graduates that have gone into local church ministry as ministers of evangelism, discipleship, or a, a, a co- uh, a college ministries, or parachurch ministries like Crew and like uh, what Stan's doing. Greg Kokel uh, has, a, has a Stan to Reason, uh, and then we've had others that have gone back to their jobs and been uh, highly effective uh I don't like the word lay people it kind of bothers me but, <laughs> but but you you get what I'm saying effective as ministers in their churches by teaching Sunday school leading groups on controversial topics you know like critical race theory which which these churches wouldn't get if they didn't have somebody with with the relevant training so it's it's uh it's not for everybody but it is a great thing if you have an inclination uh, or even a full calling in that direction. And one more thing, and I'll I'll stop here. If a person doesn't know they have a calling uh, to to move into some kind of training in the graduate level, what I say is, if you think you might, but you don't know, well, why don't you step out and try it? And if you get halfway through the first semester, and find out, you know what, this really isn't who I thought I was, you can quit. You know, try, start online, for example, and take a couple of online courses and see how, you, how it settles on you. And you might find out, gee, I want more of this or the opposite. So that's always something. So deciding to go to graduate school at a seminary is not a, a oh, my gosh, here we go, a two to three year commitment or, or even a little bit longer, because you always have the freedom to say, I don't think this is for me. And if it is for you, you're not, you're going to love it. So it's not like you're going to be, Oh, I've got to do this for two more years. You're going to say, whoopee, I get to do this. (laughs) I get to do this for two more years, even though I'm eating, you know, beans and uh, uh, sauerkraut or whatever.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, don't knock it. I know. (laughs) Hey, let me make two distinctions here. Here, One distinction is, and folks will be familiar with this from undergrad training, there's always, well, not always, but there's often the opportunity not to take a course to see if this is for me, but to audit a course. And not all courses can be audited. There's a lot of stipulations and variations, but uh, that's an option to look at too, just to get your feet wet uh, before even actually enrolling but see if there's a chance to audit a course online just to see what the conversation is like and what what kind of readings are being assigned and whether this is a professor you might want to study under. Uh, the second distinction is between a seminary and a school of theology. So uh, Talbot, for instance, is a school of theology. There are many seminaries like Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, Fine Seminary. And the difference is a seminary is a standalone institution. A school of theology is a graduate school of a university that has different departments. So the University of Chicago has a graduate school of theology, where you study that field as part of the broader conversation of the university. Again, university brings together various fields to engage in study, research, understanding of, of, of a range of topics. So uh, in the case of Talbot, it's one of a number of graduate schools of Biola University. JP, you want to mention those?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Rosemead School of Psychology, uh, uh, the, the uh, Graduate School of Education, the uh, the School of Business has got a, a, a CPA degree and so on. And uh, I don't know about the School of Film. We just got a hundred and ten million dollar gift hmm. to expand the School of Film, which is ranked thirtieth in the country, hmm. and and it's highly successful in putting people in the movie industry. And now with this hundred, we've already got a nice facility. This thing is gonna really be amazing. And that could turn into a graduate program. I don't know.
2: Sure. Sure. And there's the Graduate School of Intercultural Studies and Missions and
1: Yeah, that's right. I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. But your your point is so important because a school of theology finds its context in the midst of a, a broader university and its conversations. So that means that you not only, if you're doing the MDiv, will have a focus on the local church, but you also can't escape being sensitized to issues that are happening at the university, because we have at Biola, I'm going to guess 6,500 students, maybe a little bit less now, but in like 85, 90 majors, and uh, we've got a full range of physics and chemistry and you name it, and so it's a regular university, but it's solidly evangelical, which is another thing I would say that you ought to try to go to a school that's solid on the scripture, in the inerrancy of scripture. And for your doctor's degree, uh, except for maybe the DM, but but for a, a doctoral program, it doesn't matter as much then uh, whether you go to a school that's solid because you will by that time been informed well enough that you're not going to be bothered by studying under people that don't agree with you. So th- that that would be just another word of encouragement. Good distinction, mm-hmm. Stan. That, that that was a good good one.
0: And Stan, you talked about finding someone to study under. One of my favorite parts of undergraduate was sitting in the professor's office and listening to the smarter students ask questions and, uh, you know, getting to throw in a few myself or just being a part of those conversations. And I wonder, I've heard that who you study with matters as much as where you study or maybe more. Do you think that's true?
2: I I do. JP, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. But but absolutely. Uh, The doctoral level work is really focusing on a specific area that culminates in a dissertation where you do original research and and have something that contributes to the field. And a lot of that journey is going to be with a professor you're studying under, who's helping to guide you, who's helping to push back and correct some of the things that you haven't thought well about. And so uh, that person is going to be the most important person in your academic and professional life for years to come. And so that's, uh, that's, the critical decision, I think, at the doctoral level. Uh, JP, say more about that. I know you, uh, you yeah. with uh, Dallas, found the same thing.
1: Well, I think that's. I really do think that's right. A lot of it will depend upon a person's uh, ambitions and goals, and their. I think their talent, their GRE scores, and things like that. And I think people have got to be careful about this because. Knowledge can bring an awful lot of arrogance and pride, and so humility has got to be a part of this. Not humility that we, you know, we really can't know anything. No, know what you know, but be humble about you. Uh, But having said that, there are some students that want to get in an Ivy League school or you know one of the very very top programs because their GRE scores are off the charts, and they they want to have a high-level academic career and publish and write and teach graduate students at at a very high level, if that is a person's aptitude and sense of who they are, then I think the school might matter more than the individual. Uh, Because if you can get into Princeton or Harvard or Rutgers, that's going to increase your chances of getting a good job at Michigan State or something like that. Uh, But for everybody else, I I think who you study under may well be the most important factor. So that means then that you'll look at people that you've done some reading. Say you come to our program and you poke around and you start getting interested in something. And you find out that so-and-so seems to be Really good on that subject, and they also seem to be open to different views. So they're not going to slam dunk you if you don't agree with the professor. Well, then, then even if the school is uh, not a top twenty-five school, it might be worth going there precisely because your mentor is going to have is going to shape you whether you like it or not. So I think that's really in, in the majority of cases that's important, but. Only in some cases, it might might not be.
2: And and all of this, again, to pull back to big picture, is within the doctoral context. I know, though, that for you and a lot of our listeners, the conversations about, should I pursue a master's? So who you study under isn't as big of an issue at the master's level. Although I think it is in play a little bit. For instance, I decided to go to Talbot yep. and not to Trinity, which was the other place on my list just because I wanted to study under JP and Scott Ray who were at Talbot and um, the folks at at Trinity weren't for me as interested in, in some of the things that I was really interested in, in exploring more. They did more mm-hmm. philosophy of religion. That's great. But I had a real interest in some of the issues in metaphysics. And so it helped me determine oh, Talbot Talbot's a place because the people who are there are working on those issues. And that'll help me really, engage what I'm I'm interested in, back to the earlier point JP made. Excellent point.
0: And I'm curious how you would get a feel, you know, coming from the outside in, how you would get a feel mm. for who's doing what academically, especially when there may be excellent professors who aren't spending their time in the publishing process. You know, when you're talking about ministry degrees, it's possible that these professors are also doing ministry that's not necessarily showing up in published papers and peer-reviewed articles. So how would you go about understanding what each school's kind of thing is, or even what each professor's thing is?
1: So I think the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, does geography and cost matter to me? And if so, how much? Your parents may be getting older, and you may not want to move 1,500 miles away from them. So you may be looking at a at a circumference of about, say, 500 miles. Who knows? But you you get the point. So you have to ask how much geography is, is going to matter. There are some people who really literally cannot stand cold weather. And so schools that are in those kinds of climates might be off the board. And then you have to look at, at how much the school costs and if there's an opportunity for you to get some student aid or help or uh, that sort of thing. That's all a part of the factor that you have to think about. Now, having said that, then I, I would say the next step would be to maybe pick the top seven to ten evangelical seminaries that have a good reputation. Now, you you might not know who has a good reputation, uh, so you do, So then you got you got to start asking around. Yeah, you, you, you try to find out, get a hold of the catalogs from InterVarsity and Zondervan and these, so on, and and see which professors that teach where are doing their publishing. But again, like you That's said. a great
0: idea, Jake. Yeah, yeah. Just
1: poke around and see where, you know, who's producing stuff.
2: Because to your point earlier, uh, Jordan, any professor at any of these schools is going to be publishing. Yes. That's his or her, if not primary, one of the primary roles. So you won't find anybody at these schools who isn't publishing. So you will know what he or she's interested in.
1: Yes. And I think uh, you can also ask around, ask your pastor, ask other people that you know that have gone to seminary and, and, and what are, what do you think are the top three or four and, and, and just kind of co- try to come up with a little bit of a list and then go online and they should have a catalog and they they should list their faculty with the, you know, a little, biography of each and there's cv and you go and you just kind of check out well who are these folks and then go to the next one and, and maybe try to narrow it down that way and if if you're down to two or three maybe you should you could take a visit to campus we we've, we've had people all the time coming here they just want to check out the campus see Maybe have an office appointment with one of the professors and say, what's this place like? And if I came here, what would would you do this? Or what, you know? And then you make a decision on on that basis that factors in what you learned from learning a bit more about these schools and what they stand for and their doctrinal statement and their faculty and so on. And your geographical and financial uh, limitations that might be a factor.
2: By the way, JP, you mentioned CV. For our listeners who aren't familiar with that term, that's curriculum vitae, which is the academic equivalent of a resume. Yes. So it'll show you what, what he or she's published, where, where he or she studied. Yes. Um, research interests, those type of things.
1: Yes.
0: And now we have some great opportunities with podcasts. Dan, you interview excellent professors all the time over on the College Faith Podcast. And that's an opportunity too. Maybe some of these professors have podcasts or they've been guests on shows where you can kind of hear how they think as they're being asked questions. And another note, and we'll put this in the show notes as well, but if you're curious about this at an undergraduate level, we've got some great college faith episodes to help you through that process. So thanks for doing that, Stan.
2: Yeah. And again, looking at these Websites is great, but a Google search of a professor's name will bring up a lot of things that he or she's published and, and uh, conferences spoken at. And that gives you a great feel for what what uh, the interest is as well. There's a lot of ways to figure out uh, who you might want to study with.
0: So this is a little bit more of a a philosophical question. Why should someone consider a program like this? if it won't necessarily increase their income or specifically lead to employment?
1: That is a good question, and it does have certain philosophical aspects to it. But what has happened in higher education for, I would say, around 100, 110 years is that the purpose of an education shifted from becoming a good person and becoming a good citizen who contributes to his society or his church to getting a job. And believe me, I'm all for getting a job. <laughs> <That's>, you, gotta, <laughs> you have to do that. But the more fundamental reason to, to get an education is for you to become a different person for you to grow as a person who who has exposure to uh, and has been able to deepen your own ideas about this that and the other now if that's true then then the employment and the salary level is going to be a little less important but but it may still be a major factor given a person's own family i mean if you're married uh, and your spouse is kind of used to a certain standard of living, and it would just be difficult for that spouse to to change at this point in the spouse's life. Uh, then it, the best thing to do would be to respect those marital issues and settle for something else. So I, I think that it is a legitimate thing to bring those factors in on a case by case basis. I think that we emphasize those a little too much is what I'm trying to say. So maybe if a person is thinking about salary level or employment, they should stop for a second and say, am I approaching this the right way? And just have a little gut check, you might say. Uh, and then if they say, no, those are I, I, given, given factors X, Y, and Z, uh, in my case, they matter. So then, you do have to raise that possibility, and that might mean instead of going to your first choice, suppose you wanted to come to Talbot and be on campus, you might need to do an online course at at a, at another seminary that is less expensive than Talbot's online course. I I don't know the factors, but you get the point I'm trying to make. So you settle for limit more limited goals, and I there's nothing wrong with that. You got to balance all your commitments, and try to honor all of them in some way.
2: That's really good. Let me speak to those listeners who are in vocational ministry already and are listening to this because they're interested in maybe doing a degree. Uh, And this would be those who don't already have an MDiv or an MA, which would be a lot of folks in parachurch ministries come right out of college and go into campus ministry or become a youth pastor, what have you. For that group of listeners, This not only is a valuable thing to consider, uh, this type of, of degree that we're talking about here, degree in philosophy or apologetics or Christian thought, because it's, it's worth knowing this stuff, but you can't overestimate how valuable this will be in your ministry. So I'll just speak biographically. That was my story. Came out of college, right into vocational ministry with a parachurch campus ministry and found that both when I was talking to non-believers about the gospel and I was discipling Christian students, I was running into issues all the time. I was not prepared to answer. It might be a non-Christian asking me about what our last podcast was on. Well, how do you know God exists? Or can you be sure Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I didn't have the categories to, as we talked about last time, make some distinctions and help that non-Christian get over that hurdle and be open to the gospel as a result. Or often I'd be engaging students who were believers in conversations, maybe students I was directly discipling or those that were in our ministry I had some connection with. And they'd have really legitimate challenges they were struggling with uh, about the nature of the Trinity or the soul. And, you know, what is it and how does it relate to my body and all these kind of issues that are philosophical. There's a theological dimension to them, obviously, but there's a deep set of philosophical distinctions that come into play when you think through the Trinity or uh, or, or what we are or what have you. And it came to a head for me with one student who I'll call John. John was a very committed believer coming to college. His first semester, he had... Professors who were antagonistic to the faith, and he came to me about six, eight weeks into the semester, and said, "I'm done. I'm. I don't believe this stuff anymore." And uh, JP, uh, you'll be interested to know, this was just after I had a class with you in a summer course I took before I went to Talbot on apologetics, and we read, uh, we read your "Scaling the Secular City." It had just came out a couple of years before. Yes, I thought, you know what. Uh, this is something that might help John really wrestle with these issues he's struggling with. So I said to him, would you would you be willing to read together something that gives reasons why Christianity is most probably true? And he said, sure. So we read through uh, secular city chapter by chapter, and um, we got into chapter, I think, seven on the resurrection. And I remember this was now five, six months down the road. And he said, uh, you know what? This, This is true. This Jesus is really who he said he is. I'm in. <laughs> I'm all in, and um, you know he I'll went on you. to uh, become a pastor of a large church and has has written a number of books now, very influential in his ministry. Uh, but the point is that it was walking through those apologetic and in that book some of the philosophical underlying issues that he needed to wrestle with. But I realized, yes, God used me in that, but there was so much I couldn't bring to the table that he really needed that I needed to be better prepared to engage in conversation with him. And so that for me was the deciding factor. I said, okay, I, as hard as this is going to be as, as, as much as it's going to cost as challenging as this will be in, a, in other ways, I've got to go get this training because in the ministry, God's called me to be at least in student ministry. I think this applies for people in pastoral ministry as well. You've just got to be able to talk with folks increasingly in our post Christian culture about these issues philosophically.
1: That's such a great point, Stan. I it's heartwarming to hear you approach it from that sense of wanting to be better equipped to help people. And I think a lot of our listeners have had that experience. Yeah. And I'm saying, if you have, uh, you know, a, a graduate training may just be for you, and it sure be worth thinking about it. Like I said, you could try it out or audit. And uh, no harm, no foul, and uh, you, you know you can back out, but you might get hooked. and uh, you know who knows? So you may end up having a, a real impact because you're training and your love for the lord and the and his Holy Spirit helping you and so on.
0: Well, gentlemen, I so appreciate this conversation and I also really appreciate that both of you have said yes to writing a reference for me. Let's do it tonight. <laughs> tonight. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Bye.
1: <laughs> forget <it. laughs> forget about it. <laughs>
2: hey, there's one more thing I think we should talk about before we, we wrap up here. I think we got to talk in real practical terms, how you evaluate programs,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, how, how you look at, to determine what the best program is. JP's talked a lot about some some of the real practical factors in terms of where it is. Can you afford it? But I want to mention a few other things that haven't been said yet. One, we, we've talked about the caliber of the professors, you know, seeing that they actually have degrees that are reputable and are publishing so that, you know, you're really, as JP mentioned earlier, studying uh, under somebody who really can bring the goods. But uh, also, how much time will you get with your professors? Is it a program where really, and you get this more in a graduate school than a seminary, but really it's it's, um, doctoral students who are teaching these uh, MA classes, but you're not getting much time with these professors. Even though they're at the, the university, you just never get to see them. JP talked about the value of sitting in the office and just having those conversations. And I've had many of those kind of conversations with with a number of the Talbot faculty that were life-changing, but it's because it was the professor who had time to have me come and sit and wrestle through something with him or her. So that's important to evaluate. How much time will I get with the professors? And sometimes you might not know that unless you talk to students who are currently in the program. One of the things I was able to do was come out Uh, The year I was looking at the program and I roomed with two students in the program for a weekend and asked them the questions that I thought if I'm getting getting the party line from the university or even the professors, uh, they're going to they're going to tell me kind of the way it really is. So that was really helpful. And of course, in my case, they they said exactly what I was hearing from everybody else and helped me decide to pull the trigger. But those are important things to find out. How much time will I get with this professor? The other thing that I think is very important uh, at the master's level in a seminary or a graduate school theology context is how holistic is the curriculum? Will it help me engage the issues I'm really interested in, in my case, these issues in philosophy? But how much theology do I get? And do I get exposure to people and Thinking in spiritual formation and uh, and and church history and other things that uh, can can round me out so I'm not just a person who's got this degree in this very narrow area, but I really can't relate it to the whole of life or or other conversations. I think that's really important. And then lastly, and this is really just for those who want to do the masters as a stepping stone to the PhD. And there are a lot who do that. And I know the Talbot program, uh, boy, probably 75% of the people in our program had that as a trajectory. And that is looking at placement rates. What percentage of the people who finish this degree actually get into PhD programs? If 5% get into PhD programs, that's a red flag. If 95% get in, that's a huge green flag. So that's something to consider as well. And that data is accessible through the university. So... uh, Yeah, those are some things to add Is somebody might be looking at a a program like this. Very good.
0: That is great advice. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, JP. You're welcome. I know you said earlier, you were phrasing Talbot being wonderful as almost like an opinion. And let me just say that is a fact (laughs) that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that Talbot really does have top-notch program here in the States.
2: Thank you. Well, and it needs to be said that, Back when you and Scott Ray had the infamous conversation with the napkin at, I don't know, a McDonald's or something, It was a McDonald's. This was it McDonald's? <laughs> yeah. Uh, nothing like this existed. No. And uh, if you wanted to study philosophy, apologetics, ethics, you had to go to a secular institution and usually would not be able to integrate biblical truth with it. And so your vision was to start this. Uh, it's now the largest master's degree in philosophy in the world. Has an amazing placement rate. It was at 1.100%. It's unbelievable. Yes. And it has spawned now so many more programs. Your graduates, when I got PhDs, taught for a bit, and now have been asked to start. Yes. MA philosophy degrees, MA apologetics degrees at a lot of other institutions. So uh, there's a there's a family tree there. <laughs> Listeners will find that if they look at a number of these programs Those giving leadership to it. And I'm thinking, for instance, of Paul Gould at Palm Beach Atlantic, you know, one of one of your former students who's done who's done amazing work now in his own right. And uh, that's true of a lot of these other programs as well.
1: Amen.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks again, gentlemen. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank you for suggesting this topic. I think it's important to talk about and hope it helped you.
0: Oh, it sure did. It sure did. Again, those references are due at midnight. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plink, encouraging you to think Christianly.